In December, as the first American received her first dose of a vaccine against coronavirus, many of us felt a little glimmer of a much-needed feeling. Hope. But the widespread rollout of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines hasn't gone as smoothly as many wanted. The federal government has offered guidance and put some early plans in place, but the reality on the ground is that each state faces its own set of challenges, and supply of the vaccines is lagging way behind demand. The Biden administration has made promises about the pace of vaccinations. I think with the grace of God and the goodwill of the neighbor and the crick not rising, as the old saying goes, I think we may be able to get that to 150, uh, 1.5 million a day rather than one million a day. But we have to meet that goal of a President Biden has in part blamed the slow rollout on limited funding for state and local governments and the lack of a federal game plan from President Trump. And Biden has proposed plans to combat both of those challenges. He said his administration plans to buy an additional 200 million doses of the two coronavirus vaccines. They've also promised more resources for state and local health departments, greater federal coordination, and plans to set up mass vaccination sites. And the administration has also pledged transparency. They've said they'll publish more data about vaccine manufacturing, supply, and allocation to the states. But it's unclear if what he's laid out will broadly help more Americans get vaccinated. And it's possible that Biden's plans aren't ambitious enough. So can the administration get this right? What role should the federal government be playing in the vaccine distribution process? How much power does Biden have to change what's happening on the ground? And where is his power limited? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Isaac Stanley Becker is a political reporter at The Washington Post who's been covering the Biden administration's handling of the vaccine rollout since taking office. He laid out for me where things stand with the country's vaccine distribution at the moment. So about 47 million doses have been distributed in the country and only about 24 and a half million have actually been administered. So there are still significant bottlenecks in actually getting these shots into people's arms, but the pace has improved, and we also know that there are somewhat significant data lags. So experts are optimistic that things are improving, states and uh, localities are getting better at doing this, and also more vaccine is becoming available. So regardless of all of those things, this is fewer than the number of doses that the Trump administration promised would be in people's arms by now. What do we know about what the Biden administration inherited from the Trump administration in terms of this vaccine rollout plan? Well, there were competing and fairly confusing promises made towards the end of the Trump administration about what would happen exactly by the end of December, whether 20 million people would be fully vaccinated with these two-dose regimens, which means 40 million actual doses of the vaccine, whether 20 million shots would be administered, or whether 20 million shots would just be distributed. Now, it ended up, none of those things ended up happening by the end of December. And that created a kind of confusing and disappointing starting point now in January. At the same time, it was always the expectation and the promise of the previous administration that the pace would pick up as manufacturing became more regularized, as 
local officials and medical providers became more accustomed to doing this and better at doing this. And that has happened. So we've seen a lot of and heard a lot of complaints from the new administration about the chaotic state of things that they arrived with. And you know, much of that is true. States also were complaining that they weren't getting reliable estimates, their vaccine allotments were being cut, they were getting mixed messages. At the same time, the actual pace of manufacturing these estimates, the availability of vaccine, and the ability to get it out, ship this to you know thousands of locations across the country, that all was set up and put in place over the past set of months. And we're seeing all of that bear fruit. And aspects of the process work really, really well. It's worth mentioning that this is difficult and other countries are struggling with this as well. Demand is just vastly outstripping supply at this point all over the world. So can you talk then about what promises, given all of these factors, what promises Biden has made about how the timeline for who can get these vaccines when? So they've made a couple of promises and they range in their ambition. One of the important promises that the then president-elect made back in early December was that he was going to try to have 100 million shots within his first 100 days. At the time, this seemed fairly ambitious. Distribution had not yet begun. There was significant uncertainty about manufacturing and about the pace of it and reliability of it. So some experts thought, wow, that's a that's a fairly risky promise. And if he doesn't deliver, it could pose serious problems for his first year in office. Now that things have picked up and we're already seeing fairly reliably, a million shots being administered each day, which is what's required to get to 100 million in 100 days, it really seems much less ambitious. And the new administration has gotten a lot of questions and some criticism about this. And what they have said is that it's a floor, it's not a ceiling. In addition to that, they announced this week that they were pursuing deals to significantly expand supply a vaccine through the summer. So this wouldn't significantly speed up vaccinations in the next several weeks or even several months. But it does mean that by June, by July, they are confident that they're going to have enough vaccine for everyone who wants it. And at that point, this problem becomes vaccine hesitancy. It becomes, are there areas of the country that are not going to accept it? And how do you deal with that? How do you convince those people this is safe and effective? and also administration. So do you have the workforce to get this done? Are there enough vaccinators? Are there sites where you can do this, where people can be monitored for severe allergic reactions? And these are no small barriers to actually administering supply once that's available. So there are relatively short-term promises about you know, a number of shots they want administered within the first 100 days of, of the new administration. And then there are longer term promises about targets toward the summer and aiming to get the country back to some semblance of normalcy by, say, late summer or the fall. So those are a lot of things that the Biden administration is doing at a federal level to get more vaccines, to help these vaccines be distributed. But a problem that we've seen come up many times across the country is that getting appointments for these vaccines or the mechanisms for getting appointments, be it email or various websites, that that's very complicated, very disparate. Are there any efforts being made to sort of help that part of the process, the sort of user-facing person signing up for a vaccine part of the process? 
My understanding is that it's something that the new team is looking at and trying to understand how they can be of assistance to state and local authorities. You know, it's hard to understand a system in which people in Washington, D.C. would be organizing vaccine appointments for people in Miami and people in Seattle and people in Dallas. Some of that does have to be localized. And there are technology problems. We know there are also inequities in terms of who has the kind of access and time and you know, resources to be pursuing that and refreshing web pages, trying to get appointments. But again, I think at the root of this is really a problem of supply. If there was more plentiful supply at this point, there would not be such a scramble to snap up the last vaccine appointment available, you know, on a Friday evening at 6 p.m. So the problems won't disappear. But once there isn't such a gulf between demand and supply, this will become easier. Until that space between supply and demand narrows, many Americans seeking out their first dose are subject to some anxiety-provoking circumstances in their efforts to get an appointment. I've watched some of this anxiety unfold in real time for two people I know pretty well, my parents. Hello. Good morning. How are you guys? (laughs) I am fine. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) What's the weather like in Florida today? My parents live in Boynton Beach, Florida. They're originally from New York, which you'll soon be able to tell. And they both fall into the 65 and over category, though I imagine my mom probably didn't want me to just tell the world that. I've watched them for the past several weeks struggle to get appointments for a coronavirus vaccination in Florida, where seniors like themselves are in the first priority group. In some parts of the state, vaccines have been available for people 65 and over since December. But the process to actually get an appointment hasn't been easy. So what they would do is they would announce at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning the site for Broward County, for example, will be open. And so... At 6 o'clock in the morning, everybody tried to get on. And we just kept calling and and emailing and calling and emailing. And finally, I put my phone away because I was just so stressed out. That frantic emailing and calling went on for a while. So what did it feel like that week as you kept trying to refresh your browser and send emails? What was that feeling? It was so stressful. I'd wake up in the morning, the first thing, I'd put my name on list because sometimes some places had a registration list. I put my name on list. I would wake up during the night to check to see whether I got an email back from them. When it was, if they said a site was going to open at 9, we had the iPad, two phones, and the house phone set up and constantly redialing and refreshing to try to get through. That's exactly what what it's like in my house when my husband's trying to get Springsteen tickets. (laughs) About a week into this, my mom finally got an appointment. But they still didn't have one for my dad. So the emails, calls, and website refreshing kept going. I was so stressed out because I was afraid that they would run out of shots, that we wouldn't get through. Because when you called, you'd get a tape and say, it would say, we have no shots now. We're all out of shots. When when we get more, we'll let you know. And then every time you'd call, you'd get that tape. And then one time it would say, hold on for the next available person. And then a representative would get on, and you would give them all your information, and they'd put in a time for a shot, and they'd go, sorry, closed out. That appointment was taken. So then they'd hang up, and you'd have to start all over again. 
when you do get the appointment, mom had to wait online for close to three hours, correct? Something in that vein. And, and I had to wait online about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes. It's unbelievable the diverse distribution system. It's in supermarkets. In, it's in fairgrounds. It's in stadiums. I mean, I got mine actually at the Hard Rock Stadium where the Miami Dolphins play. Uh, I guess that's the closest I'll ever, ever get to playing football. But the point being, the, uh, <laughs> but the but it was a long wait. Uh, we, uh, and everybody is spending for themselves. And, and it appears that this is really across the whole country. It's worth the wait. I would do it again. And I will be doing it again next week. So you feel confident that you'll be able to get that shot at the appointment, that they'll have a dose available for you? Not 100%. Well, Once that well, shot is in my arm, then I'll feel confident well, that I no got this. When you guys get that second vaccine and you wait your appropriate two-plus weeks to make sure everything is all intact, what is the first thing you are going to go out and do, safely masked, of course? What's your big post-vaccine dream? Hug my grandchildren. And hug oh. you. Yeah, I want that too. I want that too. My parents are lucky. They have access to the internet. They had time to dedicate to trying to get appointments repeatedly. And their state had a distribution system that made it possible for their age group to access the vaccine. But many Americans who are eligible to get a coronavirus vaccine haven't had as much success. At this point, doses allocated to states are far below the number of eligible people. And because that supply trails the demand, states are struggling to make and keep appointments. The supply issue is hurting vaccine rollout in places like Boston. And since it started, um, you know, it's been tough. There's no question. I mean, we don't have enough doses. We wish we had more doses um, so that we could have more sites and more folks in line to get it. But we understand that it's a, it's a complex system that the state's trying to manage. So right now, it's been a tough start, no question. But we're eager to keep plugging away and continue the work that we as local government have to do. Marty Martinez is the head of Health and Human Services for the city of Boston. Massachusetts has been struggling in its vaccine distribution effort. The state is facing a lot of criticism that the rollout has been too slow and too complicated. As of Thursday, only about 5.7 percent of the population in Massachusetts had received their first dose. That puts Massachusetts about in the middle of the country's vaccination rates by state. Marty explained what their rollout challenges look like on the ground in Boston. We're the level of government that touches people's lives every single day. So without us, nothing's possible, to be honest. I mean, we have to navigate and promote and create access points and, and everything that we can to support, you know, people getting what they need. And the vaccine is no different. Within this situation, the federal government obviously controls how many doses the state gets, what they can use those doses with, and guidelines in terms of prioritization. The state then controls prioritization of who's eligible to get vaccinated, and they also control where it goes. They decide where it's going to go, how many doses go there, how to use those doses and the parameters that they use them. And then the city sort of facilitates some of that. The city's the one that not only navigates some of the local challenges, but also makes sure the voices of folks on the ground are heard. Now's the time to uh, work collaboratively and make sure that we can find solutions for our residents as we can. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. 
Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. You to try to get through it. As many cities and states across the country struggle to get vaccines to those who need them, one state that has been a relative success story is West Virginia. 9.6% of the population in West Virginia has received a first dose of the vaccine. That's among the highest rates of any state in the country. Dr. Clay Marsh is West Virginia's coronavirus czar. He's been leading the state's effort to fight COVID-19. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, when the vaccines became available, we talked with our governor and decided that we would take control of all of the vaccine doses. So we're working with our National Guard, we formed a joint interagency task force, and we decided that pharmacists in West Virginia should take control of the vaccine. So we initially have the vaccine shipped to five hubs in the state that are outfitted with ultra cold storage in case we get the Pfizer vaccine, also with generator backup. And then we transport from those five hubs, which are located at very strategic areas around the state to be able to kind of bisect the state so that you don't have to move vaccine very far between an individual hub and any place in the state. And we have pharmacists receive those vaccines when we distribute them for vaccination. Dr. Marsh and his team in West Virginia assessed the federal plan for early vaccine distribution. That plan, put forth by Trump's Operation Warp Speed, relied on a partnership with CVS and Walgreens to distribute the vaccines. In West Virginia, though, Marsh says that he and his team saw a better way. We started to look at West Virginia like every state has their own unique attributes. And we knew that one of the first targeted populations that we wanted to vaccinate was our nursing home population. We looked at our own data and 50% of our deaths were from the nursing home population. Average age of somebody dying in West Virginia is 77 years old. 77.5% of our deaths in, in West Virginians over 70 years old. So as we looked and then really wanted to rapidly get vaccines in the arms of these residents, what we realized is that we had a very large number of small pharmacies located all over the state, around 200, half of which were privately owned. So as we looked at the federal program with CVS and Walgreens, we knew that in West Virginia, that wasn't going to be able to reach all of our citizens all over the state. So we decided to activate that sort of independent network and talk to Operation Warp Speed, and they said, good idea. So that's really the reason why we started to work in this particular way. This was really about us determining for West Virginia what we thought the most expeditious and efficient pathway was to be able to quickly get vaccines in the arms of our nursing home residents. And I'll just follow up by saying, 
I think we're the first state to give the first dose in all of our nursing home and assisted living residents arms, which we finished before the end of 2020. And this week, we'll finish the second doses. And how did you make decisions about who could receive these vaccines and who should receive these vaccines in line of priority? So our governor was very clear when he gave us the mandate to save lives, protect well-being, and make sure that we protect vital capacities in our hospital healthcare systems and communities and maintain function. So as we looked at our own data, as I suggested to you, we saw that an older population was really the population that was dying most readily in West Virginia. And we also looked up data from the CDC, and and I'll briefly go over some of this data, which I think is just mind-blowing, and most people don't know about it. But from August, they did an assessment of looking at the relative risk of dying in hospitalizations in older age categories compared to 18 to 29-year-olds, the CDC did. And so I'll start with 65 because that's the age now that the CDC is recommending. So if you compare 65 to 75-year-old Americans to 18 to 29-year-olds who have COVID, 65 to 75 Americans have a 90 times risk of death and a five times risk of hospitalization. When you look at 75 to 85-year-olds compared to 18 to 29-year-olds, they have a 220 times risk of dying from COVID-19 and an eight times risk of hospitalization. And when you look at over 85-year-olds, they have a 630 times risk of dying of COVID-19 and a 13 times risk of hospitalization. Ultimately, we believe that vaccinating this population very aggressively, along with our nursing home population, assisted living, will not only save lives, but it will also protect that capacity in the hospitals that we're looking for as well. You didn't rely on the federal program for your initial distribution plan, but what about other federal guidance? Are your plans for who gets vaccinated in line with CDC recommendations? The CDC has now changed and augmented their recommendations to all Americans over 65. So we are in sync with that. What we did, Allison, we looked at our vital workforce and capacity. And after we immunized our hospital workers, particularly focused on people in emergency rooms, ICUs, and COVID units, we then also started to look at critical employees in different work sectors. So for instance, the governor decided to have all of our K through eighth grade children back in school on January 19th. And so we pivoted and we vaccinated all of our teachers, our educators and service personnel in schools who are over 50 years old, which put them in a higher risk category, but also provided additional protection against them. And so we've continued to move in a sequential way in our priority scheme, but not get stuck in that way. And as things change and we need to pivot, then we have the ability to rapidly pivot. So is agility sort of your secret weapon or what do you attribute your disproportionate success to compared to other states? Well, I think that, you know, we have great leadership. The governor's done a great job. We have a clear plan. You know, we've articulated it. We communicate a lot. We have broken down silos so that people operate on the West Virginia team, no matter what sector you're representing. And I think we have a great group of really smart people that are selfless and commit themselves to the real purpose of saving people's lives. And we believe 
sincerely, we put a needle and a vaccine in somebody's arm, we very well may have saved their life. And that is a great motivation to all of us. We've talked a lot on this show about the impact of the federal government's role in things like vaccine distribution and the coronavirus response overall. And what I'm hearing from you, in a sense, is that you really took West Virginia's own local needs into your own hands and decided that you could come up with an approach that worked best for your state. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not a federal response is most helpful or whether or not these things should really be happening at a local level? You know, I think that central coordination on certain things is really important. For instance, we all want more vaccine. And we are very excited, not blaming anybody, but excited to see production come up. You know, we get about 23,600 vaccines a week. In our current infrastructure, we believe we could handle 125,000 a week and still get them immunized in that week period of time. And with a little bit of growth, we think we could handle 200,000 vaccines a week. And that's so important because right now we've immunized 87,000 of 350,000 West Virginians over 65. And our limitation to amplify that is really vaccine amount. So I think that having central capacity for production, and also, I think, for coordination, networking between different entities as part of a learning network is really helpful. But I don't think top-down management in these kind of events is really what will win the day because they change so quickly, and every state has its local flavors. So I do think that there is a a optimal requirement of top-down meet bottoms-up. I think for the federal government, there are certain things they could do and are trying to do that will help dramatically. But there's also the need to support the states to be able to augment and customize those plans so that they are optimally focused on what that state needs. West Virginia's rollout hasn't been completely free of flaws, of course. In December, at one clinic in the state, 44 people did receive an antibody treatment instead of Moderna's coronavirus vaccine. But largely, the process has been held up as an example of a successful rollout. For many states to be able to adopt West Virginia's approach and build plans customized for their needs, they need one big thing. Money. The Biden administration has blamed some of the rollout problems on limited funding for state and local governments. I turned back to reporter Isaac Stanley Becker to understand how Biden has said his administration will address that issue. So the administration said just on Wednesday that their goal of 100 million shots in 100 days is not dependent on the additional funding that they're pursuing as part of new stimulus negotiations. But they are saying that that is absolutely critical for the longer term infrastructure of getting this done over the next half year and likely longer. You know, we saw, especially at the end of last year, a lot of concern from state and local officials about the lack of funding for workforce needs, for sites, for just a whole range of things that you need to actually you know, make this work and get vaccinations done. More funding was included in the last relief package, but they say more is still needed to make this work. It's so interesting. We've spoken to some officials in various states across the country, and largely it seems like the magic formula here is sort of guidance and help from the federal government with enough space for each state to be able to make decisions that work well for the state. Is that something that's being echoed in the administration's policies? 
I think that's right. I think states are used to doing aspects of this, you know, the annual flu vaccine, they have the infrastructure, they're used to working with the CDC. So there are certainly parts of this that are just localized and are specific to the needs and circumstances of particular places. At the same time, because of the challenges and because of this being a new product and somewhat difficult product to use, there is a need for federal coordination. And we've also seen states make that point. It's difficult to do a lot of comparing and contrasting just given the variability across the country. It's a huge country with, you know, different needs and different populations. So, you know, West Virginia has been fairly successful. South Dakota and North Dakota have moved quickly through their available supply, but we also know these are small states. And so you can't compare it to California with just its vast and numerous population centers and highly distinct needs in terms of, you know, communities of color, in terms of, you know, the type of workforce and industries that they're serving. It's just highly diverse. Is there any area worth noting where the federal government or the Biden administration really can't help, where there's things that they really can't do at a federal level that will actually impact distribution on the ground? It's a really good question. I'm not sure that there is an area in which they absolutely can't help. I think that there are areas in which they are cognizant of their reliance on more local officials and especially local messengers. And I would say that vaccine hesitancy is one of those areas. It's something that they're talking a lot about and I think are treating very, very seriously. But I think it's also something that they and many experts say is not something that a tweet from President Biden or a video message from his staff is going to address. It's something that local communities, teachers, clergy, you know, firefighters are all going to have a role in, in reassuring people and helping people see this as something that's safe and beneficial to them. All right. My last question for you, Isaac. The Biden administration has these big plans that they've laid out to make this vaccine rollout go a little bit faster and a little bit smoother. It remains to be seen whether they will. But when will the impacts of these actions likely be felt on the ground for for real Americans? Well, it's a critical point. And we are at this sort of turning point right now where we're seeing cases drop off a little bit at the same time that we're seeing these new virus variants spread really quickly. So the vaccines are going to play a really important role on if they can be used effectively to try to further stem the tide of infection, they could be really, really critical. You know, we've heard experts say that it's not going to be until the spring when we really have enough people vaccinated to see the effect in terms of halting infection. But even their use now in targeted ways could be extremely helpful. We've seen warnings that we're likely to be in for still really tough months. And so it's likely not going to be until late spring or early summer when we start seeing their widespread community benefits. But even before then, we know that they can be beneficial. All right, Isaac, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And one more thing before you go. If you've been listening to Washington Post podcasts over the past two weeks, you've heard our hosts asking you to consider subscribing to The Post. It has been incredibly meaningful for us to watch so many of you subscribe. Thank you so very much. And if you haven't subscribed yet, this is your last chance to get a really good deal exclusive to podcast listeners. A subscription gets you unlimited access to everything The Post publishes, from breaking news to baking tips. Podcast listeners can get two years of access for just $59 right now. That's less than $1 a week. 
Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I hope you'll consider it. And thank you so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh with production help and sound design this week from Bishop Sand, new logo art by Greg Manifold, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. I'm afraid of we're going to be edited out of the episode. <laughs> it's a very strong possibility, but we'll try to make it work. But then we didn't do so well. <laughs> we'll try to get you in there, I promise. All right. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to end the recording now.